Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brad Miller, and this is the Chronically Human podcast, where we have discussions aimed at creating a better world with more individual freedom and less unnecessary suffering. Today, I'm joined by Pharmacist Steve. Steve Arians has been a licensed pharmacist for over 50 years. He's worked inside hospitals, nursing homes, and for 20 years owned and operated his own independent pharmacy. And now he's getting the truth out about how the war on opioids is hurting those who are in chronic pain. We discuss the origins of the opioid crisis, and we dispel the myths surrounding it, as well as discuss how government intervention into our healthcare system especially the war on drugs, has caused many of the problems that we see today. Thanks for listening, and let us know what you think. Thank you, Steve, for being on the show. Uh, Thank you for asking me. Glad to be here. Excellent. Well, um, if people don't know who you are, you're a a pharmacist who now advocates for pain patients. You've got a great website, pharmacyststeve.com. Now, what what got you into writing your blog and putting out the information that a lot of people aren't aware of about how the opioid crisis is affecting people in pain? Well, first of all, my wife is a chronic pain patient, intractable chronic pain patient. So um, I saw what others were, she's well taken care of uh, from, from her medication needs. Um, I saw what other was going on. I saw where few pharmacists and doctors were standing up. Um, I was at retirement or near retirement. Um, I had, um, you know, I, I, I've made the, I'm licensed in two states, Indiana and Kentucky, and I'm going, what are they going to do? Revoke or suspend my license um, for unprofessional conduct? And they're going to do that for uh, for a retired pharmacists. That ought to make a good headline in a paper. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, it was just um, to see what I, my, my blog, I perceive it to be motivational and educational for the chronic pain community. They, they've got to fight for themselves. You know, right. um, there, there is no there is no a white knight on a horse coming over the horizon to save their keister. Um, you know, there's nobody named George that's going to come around and correct things. Right. Uh, so um, there's been times when, where I've considered myself maybe Don Quixote. Um, I felt that way myself. <laughs> yes, you know, because you say you need to do this. Well, you know, and, and, and you... you you run into patients that are all gung-ho to do something, but when they find out that their picture or their name or their fingerprints are going to be involved, uh, they change their mind. That's a great point because there's a lot of stigma still associated with um, with talking about taking pain medicine. I think a lot of people, when you tell them that you're that you take chronic pain patient, you're you take chronic pain medication, they look down on you. That they think that you're you're um, that that's a weakness, a character weakness. Yeah, yeah, and and um, one time I had a, I had a pharmacist I was working with, and th- three of us were talking about my wife's chronic pain and so on and so forth, and the one walked away, and the other one who was sitting next to me, we were we were in a, working in cubicles, she said, you know, I don't want to talk about it, but I use fentanyl. I go, really? Huh? She said, I'm afraid to talk about it. 
Obviously, my openness about chronic pain, she felt I wasn't going to be critical. Right. So, so you know, I've experienced that firsthand with colleagues mm -hmm. that that um, uh, are. But she was on only on a minor dose. It wasn't, you know, but but she had issues, had pain issues. So um, it, it is, it is, and and and. I will try to walk somebody in a corner if it gets that way. <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely. I think that, too, I think that the other side of that is doctors are also afraid to speak out as well because they can be get in trouble. Like you talked about with your licenses being possibly revoked, right? That's what they can lord over people to get compliance for things that, that people have a really hard time with ethically and morally. And, and, you know, the, the, the doctors are on the medical boards, have a license and a DEA license. And as we said, that most of the pharmacy boards are, are, are non-practicing corporate pharmacists. And their employer, pharmacists, pharmacy, has a DEA license. So they tend to keep rather quiet because you, you never know where the DEA is going to come at you from. And that's a, that's a great point because on your blog you do mention you have that drug clock up there, and I think that's a great point to to have the uh, the broader picture of what the DEA is really doing. Their their only function is to enforce one law, which is basically the Controlled Substances Act. Well, it's one law, but but they've either been given or they gave themselves the ability to to write new interpretations or regulations. Which and the law was passed in 1970, and they've made new uh, interpretations, regulations as recently as last year. Right, and, it's, and then they and then they go out and enforce the new new regulations. It seems like it's never ending. So I really appreciate you putting all the statistics up there, especially about what causes people to die. I thought that was really impressive about your list of. Of things, and one thing that stuck out to me was uh, the, the tobacco. Three hundred and fifty to four hundred thousand people die per year from just tobacco alone. Well, if you look at alcohol and tobacco, and, and tobacco is up to about four fifty now, alcohol is around a hundred thousand. In one year, those two drugs, nicotine and alcohol, are drugs, kill more people than all the, the American soldiers that died in all the years of war, starting with World War II, moving forward wow. until today. One year against all the years of war. That's incredible. That is incredible. That's a great statistic. I'm glad that you have that uh, on your site because along with the drug clock, that gives perspective and context to what people are calling the opioid crisis, which I think is really an opioid overdose crisis. So. But there's no crisis there with 550,000 people dying a year. Exactly. That's exactly right. Substance Act was passed. Um, they got rid of, uh, I think it was the Federal Narcotic Bureau with a $2 million budget and replaced it with what was then BNDD, Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, with 1,200 employees and a 42 or $43 million budget. They now claim that the war on drugs is they're spending 81 billion a year, and and we're probably approaching collectively close to two trillion dollars, um, and I don't believe you can find anybody that doesn't draw a paycheck off of that war mm -hmm. who would say we've made any progress. Right. Exactly. And, and probably 
uh, lost a lot of ground to begin with. Um, it's um, this weekend I've, I've had a, a, a few revelations. One was uh, a group of patients, I think it was 29 of them, and their doctor up in, I believe it was Ohio, got raided in October of 16. And they're still fighting to get copies of their medical records out of his offices. And they can't find any attorneys. And they're willing to pay an attorney. Mm -hmm. They have not been able to find an attorney who's willing to take on the DEA with these, with these medical records. Um, uh, that seems to me like a fraternity that's not going to go against a brother. Right. And, and um, it's reported that about 40% of Congress are, are attorneys. Um, so, you know, we have three branches of the government. Congress is 40% attorneys. The, the Department of Justice is all attorneys. And then Trump has surrounded himself with a bunch of people that have relatives or friends that are either substance abuser, uh, Jerome Adams, the, the, the uh, Surgeon General, brothers in jail over either selling drugs, taking drugs or whatever, but it's a substance abuse. Um, uh, Kelly and Conway had a friend or relative that either OD'd or abuses. Uh, Chris Christie had a college friend that once they were out of school, OD'd. Uh, Larry Cudwell, who is his uh, financial guy, is uh, in a recovering addict from both drugs and alcohol. And, and Trump had a brother that was an alcoholic. Hmm. Um, the mindset is in Washington, D.C. is not very conducive to going in another direction. I would agree with that. I, th I think you have a great point about it being a mental health issue as well. And I had Dr. Klein on, and we were talking about that before we started. And he talked about with especially the, uh, the opioid addiction part, that his stat that he was giving us was that four out of a thousand people will have the genetic predisposition um, for opioid addiction like like we see with the drug seeking and you know it ruining their life and everything like that but i do see that there's a definitely correlation between mental health issues as well that a lot of people are, are self-medicating because that they've had quite a bit of trauma in their life especially in their early years um whatever the thing is and and um i was at a, a local meeting with my state senator um who him and i went to Butler University together in pharmacy school, um, and we had uh, our own independent stores in adjacent towns, and he's now my senator. Mm -hmm. And there was also a senator there from uh, adjacent district, and one was talking about the cost of prisons, and the other one was talking about the, the, the opiate crisis, and I don't like to say it's an epidemic, because mm -hmm. an epidemic says, suggests it's contagious, and it's not. Mm -hmm. And then there were these women in the back of the room that had, uh, they were, um, they were foster mothers for kids and a lot of them were, were kids that have been born to, um, um, substance abuse mothers. The kids came out dependent and I don't like to use the word addicted because they also come out dependent on air and nutrition. Um, exactly in water <laughs> yeah we're all well, dependent. Uh, nutrition yeah. at their age is, is mostly 
uh, uh, fluids only. Oh, gotcha. Fresh milk or, or formula or what have you. That's so, true. Um, so I'm at the end of this conversation, I'm sitting there going, okay, folks, they're talking about not having, these mothers are talking not, ha- not having enough services to help these kids with their issues. And these two senators are talking about monies for, for, for the crisis in, in um, jails, which probably at least 25% are mental health patients. And I said, I'm sitting there hearing the future uh, substance abusers because they came genetically from a mother who was addicted. Mm-hmm. And their, acts, their, their exposure to opiates has little or nothing to do with their potential addiction. And you're up there trying to pinch pennies. And they're telling you they're not getting enough service. It went right straight over their heads. Hmm. You know, you know. I, I wanted to look and smack them upside the head and go, "Are you paying attention?" <laughs> right. You know, exactly. I, I said the senators were in front of me and the mothers were behind me, and I'm sitting in the middle going, "Nobody can see the forest for the trees here." That's a, and, that's a great point because it is a, definitely a focus on. Uh, on the criminal side of it, they're trying to criminalize uh, addiction or even what Dr. Klein, he talked about it being a genetic chemical receptor um, issue. You know, basically there was a deformed chemical receptor that was causing this. But on your website, which uh, pharmaciststeve.com, correct? Correct. Okay, you've got uh, one of the little boxes there. It's the drug war clock. And I found that very interesting because when we talk about this, it's usually the, the money's focused on putting people in prison, um, treating it like a, um, like a crime instead of treating it like a medical condition. Why did you choose to put that drug clock up there? Just for reality. Right. I mean, I, I mean on my front page, I, I, I keep uh, what killed us in 2016 and what killed us in 2017 and, 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 uh, and 18 and, and so on and so forth, and I keep a list of... Uh, I keep a suicide watch of people that I've known that have committed suicide. They were substance abusers. Um, you know, when you really look at the Department of Justice and the Department of Justice is DEA and all the rest of parts of it. I said in 1917, they declared that, that uh, opiate addiction was a crime. But yet today, and since about the, since the 60s, they have licensed methadone clinics and suboxone clinics to treat the crime of substance abuse and addiction with scheduled drugs. Suboxone's a C3, methadone's a C2. So they declared it was a crime and they're treating this crime with medication. Where, where's the logic in that one? Exactly. You know, here at Chronically Human, uh, we advocate for the separation of med- medicine and state. We had uh, Dr. Mary Ruert on, and um, she was talking about that, advocating for getting uh, law enforcement especially out of the practice of medicine. What are your thoughts as a pharmacist and the regulations that the pharmacist is under, and your thoughts about getting government regulations, not more of it like everybody's claiming that's necessary, uh, or even going less regulations? What's your take on that? Well. Two things. One, the DEA a lot of times raids a doctor on um, gross numbers. They have so many prescriptions, so many doses. But when you go down, I, there was one the other day uh, they raided, and I tried to, the, 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 worried, the, the, the verbiage was very 
vague into what they actually did. But working on a five-day-a-week uh, work schedule, this guy was writing a few few prescriptions a day over two years. A few prescriptions. The average doctor sees 30, 35 patients a day. Wow. And two or three is getting opiate prescriptions or controlled substances. Uh, what's wrong with that? One thing that, that, that I find quite difficult is that the bureaucracies, DOJ in particular, will not allow healthcare professionals access to um, the technology to verify who the person really is. There's an e-verify system that you can verify social security numbers, but only employee, employers can use it to verify they're hiring a, a legal resident. Hmm. We can't use that. Right. Um, back to my senator again. I've been pushing him for several years. I said, let's run, let's run. A, he has a very small geographical area, and there's a there's a state highway that runs through this his geographical area, and probably 90% of the pharmacies are on that road, or right adjacent road. I said, let's run a 30, 60, 90 day test where the pharmacist can validate driver's licenses um, against the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Never could get him to even consider it. Uh, I know in the state of Indiana, the, the, the Board of Pharmacy asked the Bureau of Motor Vehicles twice to let them cross-reference. Our, our prescription monitoring program is called, called INSPECT. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they wanted to validate the data and inspect the driver's licenses against the BMB, Bureau of Motor Vehicles uh, database. Twice, the Bureau of Motor Vehicles said, no, that's a violation of privacy. I mean, we're talking about pharmacists who have all your medical information. Mm -hmm. And you're worried about us looking up their birth date and their picture? <laughs> That's a violation of privacy. And the attorney general s s stood behind them. It's, it's, um, um, in fact, I posted on my blog that, that I think it's Experian, Experian the, the credit bureau, has an ad out there of somebody pulling up the drive through window and ordering uh, a, a driver's license and a bank account and whatever that's fake ID. And if anybody ever goes to a web, go to Google or Bing or whatever, and do a search on how do I get a fake driver's license? The last time I read, ran it, how many responses I got? How many? Over eight million. Wow. And if you figure that ninety nine point nine 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 percent are fake or duplications, that's still eight hundred that could be valid. Right. All you need is one. That's a, <laughs> that's that's a great point. I've not thought about that angle. Uh, I. I focused on the prescription drug monitoring program personally. You know, my take is um, that I think that's an invasion of privacy because it takes it to the state level, and now they're trying to get it um, federally uh, compatible. So at the federal level, they can look at everybody's what they're what they're taking. But I like the idea of a pharmacist being able to verify a drug or a doctor. license. I, I do like that. Or any healthcare professional, our local hospital at one point in time, and the system apparently did not work out, um, were starting to put in digital fingerprints uh, attached to your medical records in the hospital because they were getting people coming in with fake 
medical records for, for medical services, and they were end up having to eat it hmm. because it came back that that. In fact, there was a there was a story just on Chicago Med where a, a guy came in. I think it was Chicago Med. It was one of them medical shows this last week. A guy came in sick, and he was using his twin brother's health insurance because he had none. And the guy almost died because the medical records showed that the twin had had an appendectomy and his appendix removed. This guy didn't. And the doctor all missed it. He said he had the symptoms of an appendectomy, but the guy said he's had it out. And they did a CAT scan or x-ray, whatever. He said, that was like an appendix to me. Wow. And that's how it, it, it uncovered the fact that it was his twin brother that was using his twins insurance. Hmm. So, you know, but when it hits, when it hits the, 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 the prime time shows, you know, it's happening extensively. Right. Yeah. The, I think medical fraud is a huge issue. I, I do, I do, I do agree with that. Now, when we were, we were talking beforehand about the 60 minutes piece that came out recently and about, and specifically, what what I took from that is there's a certain doctor out there that um, he's a psychiatrist that he's pushing the idea that opioids are only good for two to three days after surgery. This is a quote, and for end of life treatment, and and he's being put out there as the as the 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 rational voice because also in the piece they talked about there's no long term studies that show the effectiveness of chronic pain uh, medicine. And the idea that people have been using pain medicine for, you know, for thousands of years with the poppy plant, you know, I think there's good evidence that it, it, it does work long term. What do you say to people as a pharmacist and what have you seen in your, own, in your own business as far as seeing pain patients on long term opioids? Okay, good old Dr. AK. Mm -hmm. um, uh, well, I I have an example of long-term opiate use sitting right behind me. My wife has been on long-term opiate therapy for over two decades. Um, you know, once you get past that point, the the, the, the the smaller digits really don't matter. Exactly right. Yes. <laughs> um, and I am not aware of any study that they have done on long-term um, chronic pain management. Everyone that I've been aware of, they cut at 12 weeks for fear of addiction or dependency. Mm -hmm. Well, just so happened, the definition of long-term opiate therapy for chronic pains is 90 days or greater. So they cut all these things at 84 days. So they miss... The, the goal line. Is that intentional? That's a great question. Yeah. Here at the Chronically Human Podcast, we're not above conspiracies because I think they happen every day uh, behind closed doors when, when people are in power or using the force of government to make decisions for us about how we should live. So I definitely think there's, there's something to that that should be looked into. Now, what do you think as far as... Um, in your practice when dealing with customers, did you have chronic pain patients that came and saw you month to month or, or is that something oh, yeah. that you didn't deal with? Oh yeah. It, it, um, 
I sold my independent pharmacy in, in 1996, and um, we uh, we bought a couple RVs and bounced around the country for a decade. Nice. Um, and uh, then I got bored, went back to work. <laughs> uh, when I went back to work, I started working mostly in long-term care pharmacies. Okay. And um, um, and I, I we were working behind closed doors, so there was no real HIPAA problems because everybody there was working on input or filling the medications or there was often two or three pharmacists there and sometimes one of the pharmacists I remember in particular she would get all flustered over an opiate dose and I'd look at it and I'm going I'll take care of it <laughs> and just, but she was just you know there were some things that she was very smart in, in IVs because she had a lot more experience than I did. And sometimes I'd get into IV stuff and I'm going, you want to take this one? I'm not comfortable with it, you know. So right. um, it, it, it um, uh, there's some, the pharmacists that come out today, extremely book smart. And um, when you're dealing with subjective diseases, and that's anxiety and depression and pain and, ADD, ADHD, and mental health, um, there's no checklist. There's no, um, there's no lab test. Right. There's, there's not, nothing black and white to make decisions on. You, you go, you talk to people. You know, I can, I can pretty well nail somebody that's not kosher. Um, but I can, um, I used to have one patient in particular. She was a nurse, worked in one of the hospitals, got involved with a street accident, got hit by a car. Mm -hmm. And she was still working, but she was a chronic pain patient. Someday she'd walk in the store, and i go, do you feel as bad as you look, or look as bad as you feel? You know, and she knew I was kidding her, but she some days looked pretty rough coming in the door. Right. Um, but a lot of pharmacists will look at patients, and if they're having a bad time, they're probably abusing their meds. And if they're having a good day, they probably don't need their meds. Mm, gotcha. So th there's there's no real middle ground. It's They're either uh, taking meds they don't need or abusing the ones they got. Um, you know, and, and these pharmacists that go, well, the doctor said you're only supposed to take four a day and, and you're, um, you can't have Merle. As if the doctor can really... Figure out the well. First of all, you're, if you're you're a chronic pain patient, your pain's constant. Your intensity is not exactly. That's that's you the know. great way to put that. And and so, uh, and in in some of these people, when when they start these these pharmacists in particular, that they're some a lot of them don't like me. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, just because I call them idiots. Um, but when I go, okay, I want you to look at this person and tell me how hungry they are. Are they thirsty? Are they sleepy? I can give people, and, and, and my wife is, is a good example. In my world, she'll get, bring, what about this color? I go, there's three colors in my world, black, white, and color money. Okay. You know, 
I don't care if that's chartreuse or maroon or plum or whatever. It's not black, white, or the color of money. I care less. Do what you want. Um, but you can take people and say, describe that color. And probably nobody will agree on the, the, the label you should put on that color. Uh, <laughs> so you can't put a label on the intensity of a person's pain every day, every minute, because it's just never consistent. That's, that's a great point, because I think personally I've opted out of the pain management system right now. Um, if I have, if it gets worse, I'll go back. But right now, I'm managing with kratom for my mild to moderate pain. But it's it's a great point that it's it's a subjective issue and it's a quality of life issue, like you talked about. And that's I I didn't hear anybody talk about quality of life during that sixty minutes piece. No, it's 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 all about that they're you know that we, we supposedly have. 100 plus million chronic pain patients within those numbers, we have 25 to 35 million who are identified as intractable chronic pain who need 24-7 therapy. Um, and, and, but we have these, whether it's 1.2 or 2.4 or 4 million serious substance abusers. And, and, you know, I, I was at a, I was at a meeting, we have a condo in Florida. And two winters ago, I was I went to uh, uh, it was a public meeting on the war on drugs and substance abuse, and so I had to go. <laughs> there was some politicians there, and there was a lot of social workers there, and and there was a doctor or two there, and the the first politician that started it was a couple of hours. The first politician that that started said there was I don't know sixty or seventy. Um, thousand deaths from drug overdoses, which is the total number of drug overdoses, and supposedly that number is about fifteen thousand from NSAIDs, uh, Naproxen and Motrin and that kind of stuff because they bleed out. And they kept talking around for two hours. And at the end of it, another politician decided to put the icing on the cake, and he stated there was sixty, seventy thousand opiate OD deaths. So in a two-hour period of time, we went from 70 total drug overdose deaths to 70,000 pure opiate OD deaths. I go, God, that number changed so quickly. <laughs> it was, but but you you see a lot of what is reported out there, and they quote that I think it's 72, the last thing I've heard. Um, but they imply it's all opiates, right. which is which is untrue. A lot of people don't realize is is a lot of times they talk about oh well they started on pharmaceutical grade drugs yeah they they may have started on that because they stole them from somebody's cabinet uh, they bought them on the street they robbed the pharmacy uh, but in the legal context and once a controlled substance is out of the possession of the person who has the legally legal legal right to obtain it and that's the the manufacturer, the wholesaler, the pharmacy, and the patient was prescribed to, it automatically becomes an illegal drug. Hmm. So while it may be pharmaceutical grade, it may not be legal. But they don't distinguish between that when That's they exactly went right. report yeah. numbers. Yeah. You know, so th there's so much skewing of the words they use. There's a lot of half truths. 
there's a lot of what, what I, you know. What I, this is not what my quote is. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but bureaucrats bureaucrats seem to be entitled to their own facts. That is true because the CDC has come out and said that they've misreported the the opioid overdose numbers in the past, and so they've mm-hmm. skewed that terribly. And now the number that they're they're not looking now at. Um, the specific ovio- opioid overdose deaths, they're, they're coming out with a number 400,000 since 1990 who have died due to an overdose death. And I would, I would say I would have serious issues with that number because they don't break down people who have serious medical issues, people who have serious mental issues like we talked about previously. And you talk about skewing numbers and also with language. And I think that this will be looked back I think in the future, people will look back at this time, and especially with this propaganda campaign that the government has gone into, about how language can be used to, um, to really affect uh, negative consequences on people who don't have a voice, especially the people in pain. One thing in particular I think that gets confused is dependency, um, habituation, and addiction. I think those words, three words are thrown around interchangeably, which they're not. Well, they seem to be moving away from those words, and now anybody who takes a, an opiate legally or illegally for greater than 90 days has an opiate use disorder. Okay, that's what they're using. Gotcha. You know, and, and, and there, a lot of doctors are um, looking at using Suboxone. Mm-hmm. I have a serious problem that at some point, these patients that are put on Suboxone, that somewhere down the pike, they're going into uh, a hospital or what have you, and people see um, that on their medical list, either current or previous, and they go, oh, they obviously have an opiate use disorder. I'll I'll have to add that diagnostic code, that ICD-10 code, to their list here. And all of a sudden, they're diagnosed as a substance abuser. And that sticks with you, too. Uh, It's indelible ink. Yes, and that's something you exactly. And I think that puts liability then on the the healthcare provider as well um, when they treat the patient. Then, and the patient really has zero recourse because, like you said, there's no lab tests. There's nothing that you can that you can point to that's black and white if somebody does have opioid use disorder. And I think that term has actually been used to to label people who use their pain medicine not exactly according to the label as well. And so that, that can catch a lot of people under that umbrella. Uh, I had a situation about a year ago, and, and I have an iffy back. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have to take opiates and muscle relaxers. I go out in the yard and work or whatever. I had a side nerve that went right off the rails. I mean, seriously off the rails. And our physician, our PCP, we've gone to for over 20 years. I've known him for over 30. And... I was, it took me about 10 days to get in to see him, but I was dosing myself to be acceptable pain. And um, when I finally got to see him, he said, uh, what are you taking? And I told him, and uh, it was substantial. Do you know what the response I got out of the him? What's that? He shrugged his shoulders. And he said, well, I want you to see a neurologist. And I said, okay, I'll do one. Um, and, and I said, well, how long is that going to take? And he goes, probably a couple of weeks. And I, he said, well, I'll give you. And it was a whole pot full of more for me to manage my pain until I could see the neurologist, um, which 
of all strange things, we had a we had a, a, a huge windstorm coming, and I had a tree that was going to fall down, and it was a it was a I guess a Gemini tree. It was two stuck together, and one was going to fall in the yard. It was probably going to push the other one out in the road. So I dosed myself up, grabbed my chainsaw, and knocked it down, and my sighting never went away. So I told my I told my doc I said I'm going to create a YouTube on how to resolve your sciatic nerve problems with a chainsaw. <laughs> uh, yeah, he just kind of looked at me and and, and he, he knows me so he goes sure Steve go ahead do that. Um, <laughs> so it, it's you know I I and I caution patients when I talk to them about the doctor wants to put me on Suboxone. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, don't get that on your chart. That's that could come back and bite you in your posterior at some point in the future. And I think uh, it's a good point that you talk about your primary care physician, and that's who treated pain most before this uh, current crisis. Is that you had a long-term relationship with the same doctor, and he knew you, and he knew you know your lifestyle, he knew your quality of life, what your problems were and were not. And now a lot of patients are being funneled into this pain management field, which I think is modeled after the criminal justice system in which, you know, you're treated like you're a convicted criminal and you're on parole. That's basically the pain management model now. And that those doctors don't know you. And I was I had a situation where I finally found somebody who would treat me and he put me on benephrodephrine or I'm not sure that the name of the drug, but it's a patch. And so I had to take that, and plus he gave me um, uh, a antidepressant. And so I, I told him, you know, after a month of that, I said, I don't want to do that anymore because I, I hated the way it made me feel. And I'd been taking opioid pain medicine for 30 years. And so mm-hmm. to put me on something totally new just because he's scared of the regulatory authority, I think that's a real issue. I don't blame the doctor as much as I blame the regulatory authority and that's in that environment that we're living in. Well, you know, and, and a lot of the pain docs go for, you know, spine injections. Right. And and the the, the corticosteroids and, and methylprednisolone in particular, what they normally use, both the FDA and Pfizer, who makes who makes the the, the, the company that, that has the patent or the expired patent now on methylprednisolone, not only they do not recommend they discourage the use of that drug in in ESIs, epidural spinal injections. Yet, uh, it was re- recently reported that Medicare was going to up the allowable to doctors to encourage them to do that. Hmm. And there's reportedly 10 million of those ESIs given every year, and 5% will end up with acrodinitis, I think it's called, which means that they slipped and the needle got into the into the spinal fluid. And uh, when you inject anything into the spinal fluid, it has to be both sterile and preservative-free and a solution. Hmm. And the steroid that they're using is a suspension. Hmm. And the result is an extremely painful, irreversible condition. And supposedly 5% of people get that out of sloppy technique. And people end up, uh, a friend of our daughter's uh, was is in Florida now. And she had back issues and going to 
uh, a pain clinic down there and getting ESIs and reached out to us. She had with meningitis. Hmm. I go, somebody broke sterile field someplace on the way. You know, but the doctor was going, don't know how that happens. Uh, yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. Somebody broke sterile field. Right. So um, there, there's a lot of, uh, and one of the problems that a lot of people don't understand, like the implanted pump. Mm-hmm. There is only one opiate that's approved by the FDA to be used in the pump. It's called Impumorph, and it's a morphine. Hmm. Um, but a lot of these docs, to make money, have compounded, pharmacy-compounded drugs to put in there. Hmm. Um, they... There's no stability to... Medtronic's the entity that the company makes most of the pumps. Uh, it's called a Synchromed 2. The pump is. They've done stability studies on Infimorph in, in vivo, in the body, and claim that it's at least 90% potency up to six months. Um, nobody's done those studies on compounded stuff. Um and docs will refill the pumps monthly to try to, and that's an invasive process for getting into the spinal fluid because mm. that's where the stuff in the pump goes. You know, so it is an, an invasive, for all practical purposes, an invasive procedure uh, that have, can have some serious consequences if you break sterile field. Um, the first pain clinic she went to, we talked to him about a pump, uh, me and the the uh, doctor got into a discussion. He was, I, I said, we're going to try the Infimorph. No, we're using a compounded pharmacy. Hmm. You know, as a pharmacist, he goes, you don't understand. This is a big boy issue. This is a liability issue. Wow. At that point in time, I wasn't sure which was going to prevail, my testosterone or my common sense. Because he didn't understand I had 50 pounds on him. Um, <laughs> luckily, my common sense prevailed, and I walked her out of that practice. It took me two years to find a practice that would do it according to the book. Mm-hmm. And it happened to be in a teaching hospital attached to a medical school, and she's been there for 13 years, and they treat her fantastically. Well, that's great. I, and, that's, and that's the thing is that, you know, a lot of doctors, not a lot, but some doctors, they do act like they're God in a lot of times. And they, they do think that they, they know 100% right. And maybe you have to think that to, to treat, you know, folks. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. But uh, it seems like that is an issue where you run into doctors who have that kind of attitude. And then you have other doctors who are under, who are compassionate, which I think the majority are. Um, but they're under a regulatory burden that's making them terrified right now. I think you've had on your blog about, you know, doctors being persecuted and you talked about, you know, the, the people, the DEA aren't looking at really specifics. They're just looking at raw numbers. Are you mm-hmm. seeing an increase of that? Have you talked to many doctors about that? No, um, I really think, and this is just my opinion, mm-hmm. uh, I posted a couple of things in my blog where the DEA has put help wanted ads for a financial analyst to evaluate pre-seizure pre, uh, uh, evaluations. 
If you notice the doctors they're rating, they're mostly 50 plus. I would not be surprised that at some point in time we don't find out that the DEA has a spreadsheet and one column has the estimated net worth of the doctors. Well, you know, the the Supreme Court just came out and said that, uh, you know, with um, they were talking about civil asset forfeiture, you know, yes. about the Eighth Amendment that you can't and have they, a... And they modified that. Of course, the Eighth Amendment only applies to prisoners. Okay, uh, gotcha. Yeah, so the, the, the rest of the people in the country can be abused and whatnot, and it's perfectly legal. Um, but there, there are... I don't know if you watch Fox. There's an, a, a, a judge on there, uh, Napolitano, Andrew Napolitano. I'm a fan and, of Judge Knapp. Huh? I'm a fan of Judge Knapp. I don't watch Fox, okay. but I am a fan of Judge Knapp. Well, I usually watch Fox Business. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, he was on Fox Business talking about this civil asset forfeiture. It's just it's blatantly illegal, in his opinion. And I think that the, the, the Supreme Court, in a way, agreed with them because they yes. greatly modified how they can use it. Now, I think it was Oklahoma. Indiana's also done this. Oklahoma made it illegal in Oklahoma for the for the the um, uh, police to to seize assets. The law enforcement wasn't too happy. So anytime there's a, 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 a lot of assets involved. They call the DEA in. Hmm. They do the seizure and backdoor the money to the cops. Yeah, and that's what's that's. I'm glad that you that you have that drug clock on your website because I think that that brings into perspective that what we don't the opioid crisis or epidemic or whatever they're trying to call it is not occurring in a vacuum. Personally, I think drug prohibition is the driver behind a lot of these overdoses because it has to do with adulterated drugs. You don't know the dosages and you don't know what's really in there. And so people are having issues with that and, you know, leading to terrible, terrible outcomes. Now in Liverpool, England, they tried that actually. They tried to have um, a solution to that where you could go to a pharmacist and you could get your drug of choice. And these people were addicts, but they had gone through treatment and they failed a couple times. And they, what they found with this system where you could go to a pharmacy and get the drug of your choice, even if it was heroin, crack, or cocaine, is that those people in that community, you had crime go way down, you had homelessness just about disappear, you had communicable diseases go way down, and many of the people in the program actually went back to work. They were able to function. And the reason why it got canceled because of a, of a 60 minute story, the government saw that and then they canceled in England after pressure from the embassy in the United States. And what, what is your thoughts as a pharmacist of a program like that or solutions to, to really helping people who are struggling with that? Well, Portugal's probably got the best program out there and, and it's, they, they've legalized all drugs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, their OD rate is, is dropped exponentially, and all the things you said with that other program is is that, you know, some bureaucrats have really went the other way, and Ohio's a good example. Um, uh, they just legalized marijuana, and because the bureaucrats became so greedy with the cost of licenses and taxes and so on and so forth, an ounce of marijuana costs about $500. Wow. 
you go out to Colorado, it's a hundred and a quarter. Mm-hmm. And so the people are, are buying off the street because the cartels are selling it cheaper than the government is, um, or the, gov- the the legal avenues are. So, um, and, and you may may or may not remember there was a, a massive HIV, Hep B, and C outbreak in Scott County, Indiana, hmm. a couple of years ago. Well, Scott County is about 30 miles from us. My wife has some relatives up there. Uh, in fact, a cousin has a pharmacy there in town. Okay. And at the time, um, Pence was governor. Um, if you want to get a... People go, we want to impeach Trump. I'm going, and you want Pence in that position? Oh, God, help us. Anyway, Pence decided that he was going to... His first decision was... He was going to uh, have a free needle program for 30 days, mm-hmm. like that in, in Scott County only. In Scott County is is 25,000 people. Okay, it's a rural, poor area. Like that was going to solve this 200 people that popped up with with uh, HIV positive and, and uh, Hep B and C, and uh, eventually they. They DNA tested, and I think about 85% of the infections had a, had a common source. Wow. From sharing needles. Uh-huh. Um, the, the bureaucrats in Indiana were so stupid at that point in time. The University of Louisville, which is 30 miles away, but in Kentucky, mm-hmm. it has a very good HIV program and a bunch of experts there. Indiana would not give them emergency license or come up 30 miles to help treat the people in Scott County. Hmm. Wow. You know, um, they eventually expanded the, um, the free needle program, mm-hmm. uh, for a year to a year. And I think they've kept going with it. And, um, there's had some success. Uh, I'm not too sure how much, but uh, there was also a county up in northern Indiana that did that for a year. Every county had to get approved from the state to mm. do this. Wow. Um, and one county did it for a year or two, and then the one or more members on the city council, county council, whatever it was, got a moral indignation about it and didn't renew it. Wow. I'm, I'm glad you brought up HIV because... What I didn't realize with the HIV epidemic, it was in the 80s and I was still pretty young back then, but I read recently and had on the the program Judge Jim Gray, he ran as vice president with Gary Johnson on the Libertarian ticket in 2012, and he wrote a great book, How Our Drug Laws Have Failed and What We Can Do About It. And in there it has all this information that I wasn't aware of about the war on drugs in the 90s, and one of the things about the 80s that really struck me was that the HIV epidemic was driven by dirty needles in the uh, drug addiction community. That, that uh, was... Scott County was the reason because they become duller mm-hmm. and they have to, you know, um, push harder to get them into a vein. Um, and it's, it's, um, uh, and what was, what was ignored by Indiana bureaucrats in that situation is the, you know, addicts, Substance abusers, by and large, are not rich people. Right. Mm-hmm. The expected 
lifetime cost of treating HIV, Hep B, and Hep C is upwards to three quarters of a million dollars. Now, Scott County, 25,000 people with 200 substance abusers at three quarters of a million bucks piece, it gives us some serious cash. Right. And Pence is up there going, don't worry about it, we'll take care of you. And I'm going, okay, um, us taxpayers will take care of that. <laughs> And that is, that is a good point about uh, the amount of money involved and about how my personal opinion is that whenever government intervenes in the personal choices of individuals, peaceful personal choices, even if it's to protect an individual from themselves, it has unintended consequences. And that, that's what we're seeing, especially with the fentanyl overdoses, that I, I believe it's the... Um, it's the result of the iron law of prohibition. The more you crack down on illegal substances, the more those people who produce the illegal substances will continue to increase potency and reduce the size of the, uh, the amount needed to be smuggled in. What do you think about uh, prohibition in general? And do you think that if we did go with the Portugal model, that that would be a way to help folks? Uh, you cannot control demand by limiting supply that that that's that's it so if 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 those people who have a mental health issue and you can't get them mentally on board at least you can keep them from committing crimes i mean because you know you break into a house and they they get stuff they can hog for a few hundred dollars and most people are at least a thousand dollars for deductibles, and all, and the insurance company's out for thousands re repairing whatever was busted in the, in the meantime. It's a poor return on the dollar. Right. Um, and um, some people claim that that part of socialism is for a bureaucracy to create a problem, and then create another bureaucracy to solve the problem they created. Mm -hmm. And you go back to the Harrison Narcotic Act in, in, in 1914 that created the black drug market. So then Congress passed um, uh, the Controlled Substance Act in 1970 to fight the black drug market that they created 50 some odd years previously. Mm -hmm. And um, from a political standpoint, uh, the Harrison Narcotic Act was passed by a democratically controlled Congress with a Democratic president. The Controlled Substance Act was passed by a democratically controlled Congress and, and signed with that nitwit Nixon. Um, and, and that was a bigot, a racist, and everything else. You know, he had a, he had a certain mold that only people that fit in that mold he liked. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people didn't. So, and, um, and it came out, too, that the Controlled Substances Act was passed to target his political enemies which at that time were the, the civil rights movement and also the anti-war movement. His head of domestic policy uh, admitted to that in an interview uh, before he passed away. So it, it, you're exactly right about it being based on racism and you know having the most terrible of um, intentions at the very start. It was, it, was an, it was a potential genocides of sorts, a, a, a thinning of the herd of undesirables. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, some people 
talk about now with there was somebody posting something about some politician said just to get just to kill off the 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 elderly and the sick and i'm going yeah that's how they're going to balance the budget and the medicare and social security mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you get rid of the takers and only have makers and and congress will have more money to spend and that's the problem. You, you mentioned socialism before. We've had Dr. Mark Thornton from the Mises Institute on to talk about uh, the economics of socialism, about how without the price mechanism and with other issues that it's, it's really doomed to fail from the start. It's been tried in the past, and we talked about those examples. And what people, I think, fail to realize who I think are compassionate people who support the ideas of socialism fail to realize that everything the government does is at the barrel of a gun. That every regulation, every law passed is that you have the force of government. And I think that's why it's so dangerous with medicine to get government involved. I mean, I mean look at look at what, what Benzoate was doing right now. They, they claim that the average person down there has lost almost 45 pounds mm -hmm. because of the inavailability of food. You know, so... Um, I would still be standing upright with losing 45 pounds, but there's a lot of people that, that you know, uh, wouldn't be so uh, so well off. But it, it's uh, the it's like a dog chasing his tail, you know. And, and unfortunately, the dog that's chasing his tail is the Energizer Bunny, and he never runs out of energy. And I think, too, that we talked about previously about the 60 Minutes uh, piece that just came out that's blaming the FDA for um, the overdose crisis. And what I think was important about what they were talking about is that there is a revolving door between the FDA and Big Pharma. That's about the only thing I agreed on in that entire piece. And it, But they missed the point that it's because in 1962, the uh, Drug Amendment Act was passed, and that gave the FDA the authority to not only regulate safety, but also uh, efficacy. And I think that's where the moral hazard has really creeped in to the relationship between Big Pharma and the FDA. It's, it's been stated out there that Dr. AK went to the FDA with this, what ended up being the CDC opiate dosing guidelines, and they told him to go take a hike. Now, uh, it was, I think Friedman was the previous director of CDC. Okay. Um, it's been reported that him and Dr. AK were good old buddies in their younger years at the New York Department of Health. Hmm. So, you know, and um, so apparently, because many of us, don't believe the CDC had the authority to even issue those guidelines I agree uh, because with that. because their job is infectious diseases, vaccines. Um, I, I don't know anybody who says that substance abuse or chronic pain is an, is contagious. Exactly right. Um, you know, so they um, some people now are are, are claiming. Well, they need to revise it, and I'm going, they're not going to revise it because they open that up. Somebody's going to bring up the fact that they didn't have the authority to bring them out in the first place, and it may just get rescinded, and they don't want that either. So, uh, you know, a lot of people just don't understand how the bureaucracy works. 
And that's a great point about the CDC. I'm glad you brought that up because one of the problems with increasing government involvement in any aspect of our life is that when they just make a quote-unquote suggestion, it becomes law because they know there's so much arbitrariness in how the DEA looks at doctors because they don't tell them exactly what they're looking for. There's arbitrariness when they're looking at pharmacists as well that they want to keep people scared and afraid, in my personal opinion, because that gives them more control over uh, the majority of people without them having to um, actively um, look into everything. Because they're small, it's a small group of people that's really pushing this. I think, I think the D, DEA was circling when the CDC was, was doing this because um, once something is done in the medical community, more than 50% of it's done, it becomes a standard of care and best practices. So the DEA can get one of their paid expert henchmen once it became 50% to go and, and, and testify against the doctor and goes, well, he wasn't, he wasn't meeting the standard of care and best practices. Guilty. And, and I can't believe that because the VA jumped on it immediately and then CMS jumped on it immediately almost. Now, who, uh, who is CMS? What, what uh, does that stand for? Center of Medicare and Medicaid Services. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Thank you. It's under, H, it's under HHS. Gotcha. Health and Human Services. Um, but see, the, the CMS did this kind of um, – their implementation was kind of sneaky. See, all the part – D programs are for-profit private insurance companies. So CMS dumped this on them to implement. They aren't doing it. Hmm. And they said, you, you can, you can, uh, you know, that you can do anything up to. So if an insurance company wants to do 50 MMEs, CMS didn't tell them to do it. Mm-hmm. But if they go over 90, they call 90 a soft edit and 200 a hard edit. Hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but um, uh, the insurance companies, and I repeat, they're for profit. Right. So every no, and in fact, there was, a, there was a, uh, something I read or saw, um, you know, maybe in my blog someplace. Um, this guy was doing a presentation on on um, some drug or something, and all the people that showed up were rather elderly physicians. Hmm. And he started asking what they did. They said, oh, we work for, for the, the insurance companies in PA process. And we get monthly bonuses predicated on how, how many no's we say. Yeah, so. that's, that's a great point about the insurance companies because we, we don't talk about that. I think there's definitely an interplay with the for-profit insurance industry, which I don't have a pro problem with um, capitalism or profit. But what I do have a problem with is the regulatory system, which enables basically quasi-monopolies and the use of government force to make those profits. I think that I think that's where the, the issue lies. Well, Back to that situation with me and not with my um, um, side nerve. I was my doctor's last visit on a Friday. Okay. And um, um, 
I actually had enough medicine to last me to Monday, but they wanted a PA. Okay. And that's pre-authorization, so, is that correct? PA? Prior authorization. Prior, prior authorization. authorization, okay. Um, so I said, okay, basics of practice medicine, starting, changing, stopping a patient's medicine. Your medical director's name is, who I knew, he's only licensed in Massachusetts as internal medicine. He's also has a law degree. He should know under the Controlled Substance Act, you cannot practice medicine or prescribe to a person you haven't done an in physical, in physical uh, uh, medical exam. And he's not practiced twice. He's not licensed to practice medicine in the state I live. Well, we're going to have to talk to your doctor. I said, I was his last patient, and you won't get past an answering service. Right. I didn't tell him I had a cell number, but I wasn't going to give it to him. <laughs> and I said, I don't get this medication before Monday. I'm going to start filing grievances with Medicare. Indiana Licensing, Medical Licensing Board, Massachusetts Licensing Board, and anybody else that has oversight over your medical director. Just share that with him, will you? Share that with your what? With your legal department. Do you know by noon Saturday they got a PA approved? Really? How about that? Yes. That's shocking, isn't it? I was I was amazed. You know, this is like six o'clock on Friday night. And that's, and that's part of the problem as well is that when individuals don't have a right to voluntarily transact with another person providing a service like a doctor or a pharmacy, you have this huge bureaucracy, whether it's um, the private insurance companies or it's uh, Medicare, Medicaid, and those systems. Um, it's, it's, it, it prevents you from actually transacting business, and I think that, that friction between in that transaction is what so many chronic pain patients are getting so frustrated about. Are you seeing a lot of that? Do, do you get a lot of um, feedback on your work from Twitter and places like that? Well, one thing that a lot of people don't understand, and, and uh, the DEA considers it a red flag if a patient pays for a controlled substance and has insurance. Hmm. Now, I've not seen anything out of them that said, okay, the insurance only pays at this point, and you paid for the X more, if that is exonerated because the insurance company only paid for that. Mm -hmm. And it probably won't come back on the patient, it'll come back on the pharmacy and the doctor. Uh, because see, the, the, what again, a lot of people don't understand, the DEA observes what substance abusers do. Mm -hmm. One example of that is substance abusers. You've heard of the holy, the Trinity or the Holy Trinity. Okay, yes. it involves an opiate and a benzodiazepine and a muscle relaxer. Okay. I thought you were well, talking about the original Holy Trinity. I wasn't no, aware of that, that one. That, 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 <laughs> I, I leave twelve years of Catholic school behind. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, okay, but the DEA observes that and said, well, these people take these three things together to get high, disregards the fact of taking large quantities of each to get high. Mm -hmm. So there must not be any valid medical use for those three drugs together. Mm. You know, their opinion becomes fact. Exactly. That's a great way to put that. And, and like I said earlier, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but bureaucrats are entitled to their own facts. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of 
you know, particularly fibromyalgia patients, taking those three drugs as prescribed, not necessarily together, is good therapy. But because of what the DEA observes, that also the DEA observes that substance abusers get get tolerant real quick to opiates, tolerant to the high. And they say, oh, well, they get tolerant to the high, so anytime a chronic pain patient ups their dose, they must be becoming tolerant mm-hmm. to the pain management portion. Right. Well, you can almost put money on a chronic pain patient. If you make them feel better, they'll become more active. And as they become more active, they'll induce more pain, activity-induced pain, which means they need a little more opiates. Right. You know, so, you know, but, but the DEA observes what addicts or substance abusers do and applies that to everybody else. Wow. Yeah, that, that is a huge issue. Uh, that's why we advocate for, for doctors and pharmacists and chronic pain patients and people in the addiction community as well to get together and to work together. Because I think that what's going on with the media especially is they're trying to pit different groups against each other. And, and the real issue isn't the, um, the doctors or the pharmacists or the, um, or the pain patients or the addicts. The real issue is having government intervention or the law enforcement inside the medical community. Are you seeing that um, chronic pain patients, I know they can get pretty upset, and I've been there myself, and desperate because you're in so much pain and you can't get help, that, that sometimes I think there's a, a tendency to uh, lash out at either the doctors or the addiction community because they're getting all the resources at the moment, all the attention at the moment. What are you seeing as far as advocacy goes on the side of uh, the medical field and also the personal side? Uh, There's there's literally the doctors and the pharmacists. Of course, most of the pharmacists are employees. Okay. You know, there's only only 20-some-odd thousand independents. Hmm. The rest of them work for chains. And we have a serious and growing pharmacist surplus. The 140 some odd schools are graduating 15,000 new pharmacists a year, and we only need 10,000. So, um, some of the some of the larger cities where you know young kids like to migrate to because of all the activities and availabilities in large cities, um, pay for pharmacists has dropped 40 percent of what it was a few years ago. Now, if you, you can go to Alaska and get high pay and get a job in a heartbeat, mm-hmm. but but um, uh, you go to a major city, and um, it, it just isn't happening. Hmm. And these these chains, um, um, it's reported that Walmart, for example, implemented company wide that. Uh, either as an edict to their pharmacists or through their computer systems, that they are to limit any first-time opiate prescription to a seven-day supply and no more than 50 MMEs, irregardless of what the doctor writes for. Wow. Now, uh, someone told me the other night uh, that the Texas Medical License Board is taking offense at that and is going after pharmacists for practicing medicine without a license. Well, that's 
That's good. And there was a letter that was circulating around out of Alaska uh, that the pharmacy board sent out to the pharmacist and going, you need to think of the patient first, not, you know, Florida passed in, in 15, Florida added to their uh, practice act. Pharmacists have to have two hours worth of continuing education um, every year. And basically the regulation was um, the pharmacist should not start looking for a reason not to fill a prescription. Because hmm. I can guarantee if you start looking for a reason not to fill it, you'll find one. Exactly. Dot, not a, I dot, not dot, not dot, a T not crossed, hmm. you know, type situation. Um, unfortunately, from what I hear, uh, Florida not, has no interest in enforcing it. Gotcha. You know, uh, when they passed it, um, in fact, I was down there at the, at the board meeting when they did that. Um, they gave the pharmacists about two years to meet those two hour CE requirement the first time. So I figured the first two years was eh, we can't do anything because we don't know what pharmacists have had the CE yet. Hmm. You know, so th this is a this is a transition period, so we're going to do nothing. But it, even after that point, one, from what I'm hearing, they're still not doing nothing. So, um, but um, uh, that with Texas, that's apparently a, a very recent thing with the medical license board, and that letter from the pharmacy board in 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 Alaska was something fairly recent. Mm -hmm. So, so things are are could be changing. Well, that's unfortunately. Good. Unfortunately, most of the pharmacy boards, according to a publication about 10 years ago, uh, um, a guy from USA Today, uh, that the vast majority of the people on the various 51 boards of pharmacy uh, are non-practicing corporate pharmacists. Hmm. So they work for Walgreens and Rite Aid and Walmart, and, and they're execs. Mm-hmm. So, um, and while they're competitors in the marketplace, when they're in that environment, they are staunch defenders of corporate pharmacy. They don't care. So they're not going to buck any corporation for doing something that they think they can dismiss or ignore. Well, that's a, that's a great point about these large pharmacy chains. I've run into that personally, especially when this mess was first starting out with all these regulations coming out. It seems like they were taking it upon themselves to even be more draconian than the actual recommendations because they're not law, right? The, the CDC recommendations are just that, a recommendation. Guidelines. And well, they're also, they're also, there's a thing called the beard guidelines. And basically, if you, if you get into the beard guidelines... It says nobody over 50 should take an inset or an opiate or, or half the drugs in the marketplace. And, and it's, but don't, they don't even come up to guidelines. There's recommendations. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that is crazy. And I think, too, what most people don't realize with all this uh, talk about the opioid crisis, especially with that 60 Minutes piece, is that the DEA has cut manufacturing of opioids. Their goal is by 30% in the next three years. And so it's 10% being decreased each uh, Well, each year. They, they've already done some 20 and 25% cuts for two or three years in a row. So so we're, 
Um, so it's, it's a severe reduction in, in prescriptions while the overdose rate is still is still skyrocketing. So the, the prescriptions, what they've blamed for the problem has, has really gone down a lot while the, the result of what they claim was the, the reason for the problem is still going up. The, the numbers I've seen is the prescriptions, opiate prescriptions, and, and we don't know what, again, they don't report is the number of prescriptions are a 15-year low. Mm. We don't know the quantities of opiates where they are because prescriptions can be anywhere from 30 to 300 tablets or, do or tablets or capsules. But overdoses are a 15-year high. So, uh, but they don't see any correlation or lack of cor correlation in opiate prescribing and, and overdosing. And uh, it, it's just like um, with the, the methamphetamine, Sudafed, they, they, they cracked down on that really hard. And, um, and back to my senator friend, I'm going, 80, Indiana was, Indiana, Indiana passed a law that pharmacists didn't have to sell Sudafed on anybody they don't know. They don't know. Non-prescription customer. In fact, when they passed the law, they indemnified the pharmacist from being sued for not selling it. Hmm. Wow. And I said, you know, eighty percent. Indiana was was one of the had the most meth labs busted for a number of years. I said, and, and I told him, I said, you know, eighty percent of the meth on the street comes from Mexico already. Right. And and uh, I am I understand they have a lot of reserve capacity. So not selling pseudoephedrine, just great try. And that, you know, that's that's a great point because the prescription drug monitoring program really started with, with Sudafed, if you think about it, that you had to start um, writing your name down, giving your driver's license and all of that, and they started keeping a record it's, in, it's in start, any place. It started before that. It was Kentucky was the, the first one, and, and their, their program is called CASPER. Um, and the law that implemented Casper and the software that they end up using was funded by, by Purdue Pharma. And if you read it, you can see their fingerprints all over that law. Hmm. Um, when it was first implemented in Kentucky, only law enforcement could, could address it. And only if they had an active case. Hmm. So pharmacists were submitting all this data and they were getting about one inquiry a week <laughs> for a report. Right. All this money, all this resources, and for you know, and um, I know I, I'm I'm still a, an authorized user of Casper and Inspect in Indiana. Mm -hmm. And when one of their advancements was that only pharmacies could register to use Casper. At that point in time, I was doing a lot of relief work, moonlighting. That was my job. And I'd go in these stores and I'm going, okay, I need to log into to Casper. Oh, well, so-and-so had that. And that's three pharmacists ago. And we don't know what the password is. And we don't know what this is. And so I called up the, the guy who was in charge of it in, in Frankfurt. And I go, look, Jack. I'm coming, the, and the, the stores are signed up, and nobody knows the password because it wasn't passed along. I was probably the first pharmacist in Kentucky that 
got permission to get a login, and, and uh, uh, I think he registered me as an independent pharmacy and registered me to get into it. Wow. And and uh, but I'm going, I can't use this stuff. And at first, the chains were not allowing their pharmacists to get on the internet. Hmm. And guess where you had to go to get register to open these account open on these the reports. Yeah. You know, so that was another obstacle to get over. And, and I think there were some legislatures that said, you will allow your pharmacist internet access. <laughs> so it's been it's been it's been a very bumpy road. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, with with the availability of easy access to fake IDs, and I'll give you an example. Um, the pharmacy we were going to at the time, the pharmacist there was I'd known for God thirty years, and I, I dropped off a couple of control prescriptions for Barb at the drive-through, and they said we need a driver's license, and I said, well, I'll show it when I pick them up. No, need them now. Mm-hmm. And this technician was doing it, and she's sitting there going. Jenny, yeah, go ahead. So, show you how stupid these things are. Okay, as I said, we have a Florida condo. We have a home in Indiana. Because we don't rent our our condo in Florida, we declare Florida as our state of residency because there's no state income tax. Right. Okay? So, the prescription, and we we use a UPS store here as a mailing drop. Mm -hmm. So, we have a residence and a mailing drop. So the prescription had one of the two Indiana addresses on it. And I hand him my driver's license with a Florida address on it. He's happy as a pig and slop. He got it. He got it. And, and when I talked to pharmacists, I said, how do you validate that license? The expiration date. It's got a good expiration date. We're good. But none of the addresses matched. The name didn't match, but they were happy. And, and it's just, they want to create this entirely other system to do what something very simply could be done by just verifying a driver's license against the DMV to make sure this is the right person. Uh, yeah. And one of those, uh, bringing back the 60 minutes uh, piece uh, one more time here before we finish up. The uh, What they didn't talk about with Dr. Kolodny was that he is working with Brandeis University. I think that's how you say it, B-R-A-N-D-E-I-S. And they uh-huh. have a center for prescription drug monitoring programs there. And so they've, with um, the, what the, has happened is the Trump administration has signed $6 billion worth of funding to go to different efforts to affect the opioid crisis. And the 60 Minutes story didn't, didn't talk about that conflict of interest where hundreds of millions of dollars have gone to the states and are being funneled to all these different organizations, and I'm not sure what they're getting, but you know, if it holds true what, uh, what these uh, funds are going to be spent for, it's going to be exactly on the, the type of services that they offer. It, it, and, and I wonder with, with Dr. AK if his high, high visibility isn't about raising funds for their endowment and getting enrollment and some other things that, that because it's, if his name is mentioned, Brandeis is right behind it. Right. You know, so um, he's not quite sure what they're after, but it's money someplace from something. Exactly. Yeah. I think, I think that's, 
That's exactly right. I think that's a, a great way to wrap it up here, Pharmacist okay. Steve. I appreciate your time here. Uh, where can folks find um, your work and uh, where can they find you on social media? Uh, social. Uh, my, my blog is pharmaciststeve.com mm -hmm. and um, on uh, Facebook, I think it's just Steve Aaron's, but at Twitter, it's at Pharmacist Steve. Awesome. Well, I appreciate your work, Pharmacist Steve, for advocating for people in pain uh, like myself and the millions of others out there who, who, are, um, who are struggling under this regulatory burden that's causing people to suffer unnecessarily. So I appreciate that. And thank you for everybody for listening today. And we will see you next time.